Okay, let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. God, our Father, we ask your blessing on us this day. Enlighten our minds with the gift of faith. Send your Spirit to give us understanding and wisdom. And strengthen our hearts with the fire of your love. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so for those of you who don't know who I am yet, I'm Father Doug. I'm one of the... uh, three priests here at the cathedral. So I just started here at the beginning of January. If you were coming around last semester, then you didn't see me, but uh, here I am. In addition to working at the cathedral, my, uh, my main job is working at the uh, diocese where I work at the tribunal in uh, canon law. So that's what I do during the week. And then I'm here on the evenings and on the weekends. And uh, I went through RCIA myself in... Um, in 2006, 2007, when I was a freshman in uh, college at Texas A&M. Nobody whooped. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. There are too many, uh, too many T-sips. Um, anyhow, so there it is. So we have to talk about uh, everything in the universe tonight. Original, originally, we were supposed to talk about the sacraments of penance, anointing, marriage, and holy orders. And Father Will wanted me to add a discussion of the sacrifice of the Mass, since he didn't get to it last week. So that's what we're going to try to do, briefly. And then we'll have some time for questions, so be pondering on your questions. So the, the sacrifice of the Mass, that's going to be our first topic. So last week, Father Will talked about the Eucharist as a sacrament. And we talked about a change that occurs in the bread and the wine, in the sacrament of the Eucharist. What change is that? Yeah, Christ's words are what caused the change. What change do they cause? The substance of the bread is flesh. Okay. The bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. More specifically, their substance is changed. The substance of the bread and wine is changed into the substance of the body and blood of Christ. And there's a special name for that transformation. Transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. Yep. A change of substance. A change in what it is. So we talked about that last week. We wandered around some of the theological puzzles as the mind tries to understand what that means. What we want to talk about tonight is how the Mass is a sacrifice. And you might have thought of that before. You might not have thought about that before. But if you walk into a Catholic church, the the minister presiding at the ceremony is called a a priest. That big table up at the front is called an... And what is it it happens on an altar with a priest? A sacrifice, right? That's why those things are called that, because the Eucharist is a sacrifice. So first of all, we want to get a sense of what a sacrifice uh, is. Anybody want to take a stab at defining it? Yeah. I've had this defined for me before. So okay. But a sacrifice needs a victim. Um, it needs like a specific individual thing that is being sacrificed for. <laughs> okay, so those are some components of a sacrifice. Something's being offered. It's being offered on behalf of somebody or for somebody. And then there's somebody who's doing the offering. That's the priest. And then there's someone who's receiving the offering. Who is that? God. God. 
sacrifice would be an offering made to God. Anybody else? Kind of what is a sacrifice, basically? Yeah. Um, one misconception I think a lot of people can find is they assume that sacrifices are always bloody. Okay. They aren't always, assuming they aren't reasonable. Okay, so you could have an unbloody or a bloody sacrifice. We'll talk about that specifically with the Mass, since the Mass is an unbloody sacrifice. Anybody else? What basically is going on when you sacrifice something? Because before Christianity, there were sacrifices. There are sacrifices in ancient Judaism, and there are sacrifices in pagan religions. It's almost like a natural, spontaneous thing because all, all kinds of different cultures all over the place come up with this spontaneously. What do you do when you, when you make a sacrifice? You give something up. You give something to God, and it's what kind of stuff do people sacrifice? Historically, what have they sacrificed? Something valuable, right? Especially what? What? Animals. Okay, animals. Yeah, animals. Hmm? Incense, although incense usually has been more thought of as something that accompanies the sacrifice than the sacrifice itself. The main thing that people have usually offered in sacrifice have been animals and crops. In other words, uh, the things that literally sustain life. You don't find, if you go through the history of religion, a lot of examples of trying to offer like gold as a sacrifice or something like that, right? You, you offer usually the stuff that's, that sustains life, valuable stuff, animals and plants, and what is the way in which you offer it. To do a sacrifice of a lamb, do you just sort of take the lamb and place it in the temple and let it roam around in there? No. You have to kill the lamb, right? The sacrifice somehow involves the notion that whatever's being offered to God is being consumed. It's being changed somehow. It's being given up into his glory. So sacrifice in that sense is the supreme act of worship, really. And mankind, by the natural law, feels the instinct to do this. We know that everything we have is from God. Every benefit we receive is from God. And instinctively, almost, we feel the need to recognize that somehow. Now, what can we give to God that he doesn't already have? Nothing, really. But we, have, we feel this need, almost by a natural impulse, to take those things that sustain our life and to let some of them, at least, be consumed in the worship of God. Now, why would we do that? Any specific reasons why we would offer a sacrifice? Yeah. Okay, so that's the concept of adoration, right? Just to worship him. Just to acknowledge his, his dominion, his supremacy, his majesty. Any other reasons? Thanksgiving. To, give, to thank him for the benefits that he's bestowed on us. Any other reasons? Yeah, to atone for sins, especially if we know that we've sinned. We might feel like if we approach God with the blood of a sacrifice, it could somehow atone for our sin. And uh, there's one more traditional reason. <laughs> it's the sacrifice of supplication in order to ask God for what we need, in order to ask God for what we need, for a good harvest, for supernatural grace, to ask him for something. Okay. That's the concept of a sacrifice. We have it in the old law. Primitive sacrifice offered from the beginning. Cain and Abel are offering sacrifice. There's no special priesthood established yet in the early part of the Old Testament. It's just a priesthood of the, of the father, really, of the, the priesthood of the father of a family. But at the time of Moses, a special priesthood is instituted. That is Aaron's, Aaron, who's Moses' brother, is established as the first priest in Aaron's descendants. 
after that become the Israelite priests. So the Israelite priests is a hereditary thing. They inherit the priesthood. And still um, today in Jewish communities, they often keep track of that priestly lineage. If somebody has priestly lineage, uh, and the name, the name Cohen, if you've seen that name before, Kohen means a priest in Hebrew. And that's generally what that name signifies, a priestly, uh, a priestly lineage. Okay. So is the Eucharist a sacrifice? We could look at three basic scriptural arguments that indicate that the Eucharist, the sacrament of Christ's body and blood, is meant to be a sacrifice. First of all, there's the Old Testament prophecies. Um, it's part of the prophecies of when the Messiah comes that one of the things he's going to do is institute a purified sacrificial worship. Okay? There's a sense, especially later into the Old Testament prophets, that the, the sacrificial worship of Israel's temple has become corrupt somehow. That it's, um, even if it's not corrupt, that it's not enough, right? The prophets start to be saying, you know, um, you know, could the, could the, <coughs> do you think I drink the blood of goats, God says, right? Do you, do you think that this could be enough for me? Or what will we offer to the Lord that he doesn't already have? That it's not, and that one of the things that will happen, though, according to the prophets, when the Messiah comes, is that he's going to purify the sacrificial worship so that a pure sacrifice will be offered to God, Okay. And one of those most famous prophecies comes from the beginning of Malachi, which is echoed in the third Eucharistic prayer that we say at Mass sometimes. From, from the rising of the sun to its setting, a pure sacrifice may be offered to your name. So the priest saying those words that come from Malachi right before, because Malachi prophesied that centuries before Christ, that when the Messiah comes, from the rising of the sun to its setting, a pure sacrifice will be offered. And this is the curious thing. According to Malachi, it will be offered by the Gentiles, right? Not just by the people of Israel, but by the Gentiles too, the whole world offering the sacrifice. So there's the Old Testament prophecies that the new covenant, when it comes, is going to involve some kind of sacrificial worship. The second thing is the words of institution themselves. What are the words? The words of Jesus for the, for the bread. What does he say? This is my body what? Which will be given up for you, okay? Now that's a sacrificial undertone, right? He doesn't, it's not just this is my body, but this is my body which will be given up for you. And then the same thing with the chalice, right? This is the chalice of my blood. Then it says the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. Well, that, that the blood of the covenant is immediately going to make you think of sacrifice because when when this covenant was first inaugurated with Moses, there were sacrifices, there was a tremendous amount of blood poured out on the altar, and then the blood of, that was poured on the altar had to be splashed on Moses and on the people too, right? You, you know, we go around uh, doing the holy water right now, you could imagine doing that with blood, right? It'd be a little bit more intense. But this is the idea that the sacrifice has got to be shared by the people, that it binds them together with God so they have to get into it somehow, right? The blood has to get on them. So the blood of the covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, this is all sacrificial language. So the words of institution themselves suggest that the Eucharist is a sacrifice. <coughs> and finally, St. Paul, in his account of the Eucharist in 1 Corinthians, specifically equates the Christian Eucharist, not equates, but compares, specifically compares the Christian Eucharist to the Jewish sacrifices of the altar and to the pagan sacrifices that they offer to their gods, right? The pagans had their sacrifices, the Jewish priests had their sacrifices, and Christians had the Eucharist, 
which, which, which lines it up for you. So what does that mean exactly, that the Eucharist is a sacrifice? Um, the church definitely says that it is a sacrifice. There are um, some differences among different Catholic theological schools about how to explain exactly theologically how the sacrifice works. So we're going we're gonna to move here with the, the most common explanation, which is the explanation of the, um, the Thomistic school, the school that follows St. Thomas Aquinas, which is the one that's most been taken up by the magisterium of the church as well. Okay. So to make that explanation, first of all, we want to isolate two actions that are part of a sacrifice. They're called the immolation and the oblation. The immolation is where the victim of the sacrifice is killed or altered or destroyed or consumed somehow, right? So if you have a lamb for the sacrifice, the first thing that happens is you're going to slaughter the lamb, right? But then that's not enough, and that's not even really the high point of the sacrifice. If you were in the Jewish sacrifices, what would happen after the lamb was slaughtered? They burn burn the lamb on the altar and especially pour out on the altar the blood, the blood of the sacrifice, right? The blood of the sacrifice. Sometimes the whole animal was consumed on the altar to the glory of God. That was the whole burnt offering or was the Holocaust. And then some of the offerings... It was some of it was consumed on the altar and some of it was given to the priests and sometimes some of it was even eaten by the worshipers, like the Passover lamb, for example, where, where um, the lamb is eaten by the worshipers. So you have these two things. First, the animal is killed, then it has to be offered. Now, the offering in the Old Testament sacrifices was always done by a priest. The immolation, though, sometimes by the priest, sometimes not. Uh, maybe by the priest's assistant to... Um, to kill the lamb. So you have these two things. Can you find these two things in the Eucharist? Well, in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, what's, who, what's the victim? What's being offered to God? Hmm? Christ himself is the victim. His body and blood, really his very self, is offered to God on the cross. And who's the priest? Who's the one doing the offering? also Christ. Christ himself is the priest and the victim, okay? The priest and the victim. So he offers himself to the Father on the cross. That's the oblation, which is an activity principally in the heart of Christ, his self-offering to the Father. And there's an immolation. The immolation on the cross is the physical shedding of Christ's blood, right? His blood is physically shed on the cross. It runs down the side of the cross it flows from his pierced side onto Mary and St. John, and right, that's the immolation. Okay, you have both of those things there. Now, what happens in the Mass? Well, first of all, it's easier to see how the oblation from the cross continues, because the oblation is the act of self-offering in the heart of Christ. Now, did that act of self-offering ever end? What do you think? No, Christ always offers himself to the Father. In fact, according to the letter of the Hebrew, to the Hebrews, he, he, he stands in heaven offering himself to the Father. This has traditionally been thought to be one of the reasons why when Christ rose from the dead, the wounds are still apparent on his body. You can still see the nail mark in his hand, the piercing in his side, because now, where is his body? It's in heaven, and it's wounded. 
right? The wounds are there. That means ever before the Father's face, Christ stands in his, in his wounded humanity and offers to his Father what he did upon the cross, okay? So the, the oblation, the offering is ever living in the heart of Christ. From the moment of Calvary even to now, he continues to offer himself. The immolation, though, the immolation is... Um, the immolation at Calvary is the physical shedding of Christ's blood. And we don't want to say that Christ's blood is physically shed whenever we celebrate the Eucharist. That would mean that Christ was suffering again or that he was dying again every time we celebrate Mass, and that's not true. We know from Scripture that Christ died once and for all, that risen from the dead, he can't suffer anymore or die anymore. The death has no power over him. So it can't be that Christ's body and blood are being physically separated every time Mass is celebrated. What can happen, though, is we can say that his body and blood are shed mystically or sacramentally every time the Mass is celebrated. Now, the principal sign of this in the Mass is that we consecrate first the bread and then the wine, okay? Separately, in other words, right? We separately consecrate the bread and the wine. Now, we know that the substance of them is changed into the body and blood of Christ, but the appearances remain there. And what are the appearances? When the priest holds up the body and blood of God toward heaven and says, through him and with him and in him, what appearances are there? Are they appearances of Christ alive or of Christ dead? Well, Christ is alive, but the appearances of bread and wine that remain are signs of death, right? They're separated. This is my body which will be given up. This is the blood of the covenant poured out. Right? It, it, by a separate consecration, right, we have the signification of the separation of Christ's body and blood on the cross. Okay, the signification of the separation by the double consecration. That's why <clears throat> if you were to have a mass where you did not consecrate both the bread and the wine, you would not have the sacrifice because you would not signify Christ's death. Um, which is why even when the people are not going to receive communion from the chalice, Always, 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 the priest consecrates the chalice and receives from the chalice because this is part of the essence of the sacrifice. Okay. Now we say that this double consecration, body, blood, is a sacramental and not a physical shedding of Christ's blood. It's sacramental, which means what? What is a sacrament? Isn't that a mystery? It is a mystery, but especially a sacrament is, anybody can remember a definition? Yes, it's an efficacious sign. So when we say that Christ's blood is shed sacramentally in the Mass, we mean that his, the shedding of his blood is signified, first of all. That's by the separate consecration of the body and the blood. But not just signified. Since it's an efficacious sign, the second part of what we mean when we say that Christ's blood is shed sacramentally in the Mass is that the power of the shedding of his blood upon the cross becomes active. Right? For the people for whom the Mass is offered, for the people participating in the offering, even as we're going to see in a minute, for the whole church, right? for the whole church, so that the power of Christ's sacrifice uh, is communicated to us every time the Mass is celebrated. We're drawn into it, so to speak. Okay. So, in the Mass, we have the oblation, ever living in the heart of Christ, which also comes then to take up a, an act of offering by the priest. The priest, um, 
the ordained priest who serves as Christ's instrument or his agent in the Mass. You could say that in the Mass, Christ is making the oblation through the priest, and the priest exteriorizes that in the words of the Eucharistic prayer. Right? Um, to accept these gifts, once you are pleased to accept the gifts of your servant, Abel the just, the sacrifice of Abraham, our father in faith, and the uh, <coughs> sacrifice offered by your high priest Melchizedek, right? Those are words of asking God, be pleased to look upon these offerings with a serene and kindly countenance. These are words begging God to accept the sacrifice, offering the sacrifice to God. Okay, we have the oblation. First of all, ever living in the heart of Christ, but then also using the priest as an instrument to offer it. And we have the immolation, the separation of Christ's body and blood, but it's not a physical separation. What kind of separation is it? Sacramental or mystical, we could say. Okay. Now, how is the sacrifice of the altar, the mass, how is the sacrifice of the altar related to the sacrifice of the cross? Would you say that it's a different sacrifice? Yeah, we want to say it's the same sacrifice. The sacrifice of the altar is the same sacrifice as the sacrifice of the cross. The priest is the same. Christ is the priest. At the cross, he's directly the, the only priest. In the mass, he is the priest, but he's also operating through an ordained priest. But the priest is the same, and the victim is the same. What's the victim on the cross? Christ himself. What's the victim in the mass? Christ himself. The same priest and the same victim, the same act of offering, ever living in the heart of Christ, is still there in every Mass. Um, and we're joining to it our own act of offering every time. And the immolation is a sacramental immolation, which means that it works precisely by pointing back to the physical immolation. Right? In other words, um, without the cross, so to speak, the Mass wouldn't work. Right? Its, uh, its whole power is derived from its ability to signify and make present the effects of the sacrifice of the cross. So the sacrifice of the mass is the same as the sacrifice of the cross, the same priest and the same victim, Jesus Christ. What we say is only the manner of offering is different. It was offered in a bloody manner on the cross, in an unbloody manner in the mass, okay? But it's the same sacrifice. Anybody want to ask a question? Yeah. Uh huh. Absolutely. We're going to talk about that in just a minute when we talk about who offers the sacrifice. But absolutely, the the offering of Christ is meant to draw us into it, right? So we offer the sacrifice of Christ to the Father, but then we also offer ourselves with Christ and, and through him to the Father. In fact, you could think about that as the, the whole Christian life, really, is an exercise in making your life a living sacrifice. And you do that especially when you, when you go to Mass, you do that by joining yourself to Christ's offering and asking him to take you up into his offering, and then you live that out every day of your life as you try to make it a reality in the way you live and what you do. Okay, so who offers the sacrifice of the Mass? We've said that the Christ offers it, and we've said that he offers it in, a, in, a, in the Mass, he offers it through 
uh, an ordained priest that he uses as his instrument. And the priest, by his ordination, is configured to Christ so that he is able to do that. But the priest is not the only one who offers the sacrifice. Who else offers the sacrifice? Father Jonathan was talking about this a couple weeks ago, right before the Eucharist starts. Yeah. Yeah, the laity do too. Right before the Eucharist starts, the priest says, pray, brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God and the Almighty Father. Yeah. Uh, we're going to come back to that when we talk about holy orders in a minute. But we mean that he is, um, the pattern of Christ is put on his soul in a certain way that, that connects him to Christ in a certain way. We'll come to that in a minute. Um, okay. So the laity offer the sacrifice too. That's said several times in the course of the Mass. We, your servants, that's the priests, and your holy people, that's everybody else, offer you this sacrifice of praise. And then there's one part where it says we offer you this, or they offer it for themselves, that, meaning that the people offer the sacrifice too. So the people also join in the offering. And this is one of the things that your baptism configures you to Christ to make you able to do. Your baptism makes you able to participate in the offering of the sacrifice. What does that mean? It means that when you go to Mass and the, the, you know, the, the Eucharistic prayer is happening, okay, that the role, your job when you're there is not just to wait until it's time for communion, as if the priest is doing that part, that's his part, and then I'll be ready when it's time for communion. When the priest is at the altar offering the body and blood of Christ to his Father, your job is to spiritually unite yourself with that act of offering. You offer it to the Father too. And with the body and blood of Christ, you strive to offer yourself and everything that you have and everything you are. That's the highest sense of the active participation in the liturgy, right? It's not a spectacle that you passively observe. It's not an entertainment that you take in. It's a sacrifice that you join in. And we say that the laity offer the sacrifice not only through the priest, but also with the priest. Okay? What that means is that offering it through the priest might just mean that uh, you know, we get the priest to do it for us. Right? Um, we ask him to do it, and he does it, and God receives it. It's beneficial to us. But also with the priest. If you want an analogy, if you were an ancient Israelite, and it was time for you to offer a lamb, you would not be able to offer your lamb to God yourself, right? You would need to take it to the priest who was ordained to do that. But if you got a lamb out of your flock and you brought it to the priest, you can see how this sacrifice is the priest's sacrifice, but it's also your sacrifice, right? And this is symbolized in the liturgy when, um, it was sort of a COVID casualty, but when, uh, when some members of the faithful at the offertory bring bread and wine down the altar, right? And hand it to the priest, right? This is a sign that everybody's participating in this sacrifice together. And so the people are presenting the bread and wine to the priest, which is going to be offered to God. They don't, the laity and the priest don't offer in the same way, so we don't want to confuse the roles. And the priesthood of the laity depends on the ordained priesthood. There's no way for the laity to offer the sacrifice without an ordained priest to offer the sacrifice. But, <clears throat> but still, both of them are offering not only through, but also with the priest. Who does the sacrifice benefit? What do you think? 
Anybody? Huh? Okay. You can listen. If you listen to the Eucharistic prayer, you'll hear about who it benefits. But we could distinguish three groups of people, really. It benefits the whole church, first of all. Right? And we pray for the Pope and the bishop every time. That means every time Mass is celebrated anywhere in the world, on any altar in the world, you benefit. It's offered for the whole church, right? It's offered for the whole church. It's a constant source of grace from the rising of the sun to its setting. That's a wonderful thing. Okay, so it's offered for the whole church. It also, in a special way, benefits the participants in that Mass. There's a special fruit of the Mass that goes to the priest and the people who are involved in that particular Mass. And some of the prayers in the Eucharistic prayer are for the whole church, and some of the prayers are for the people who are actually there. That's the second fruit. The third fruit is the most specific fruit, um, and that is that the Mass is offered for a particular intention. Now, you might have heard them announce that before Mass, or you might have read it in the bulletin. This Mass today is offered for such and such and so and so. What does that mean? That means that um, this sacrifice, it's offered for all those things, for the good of the whole church and the people there, but it's offered in a special way for some particular intention, right? Because just like the sacrifices in the Old Testament were offered in thanksgiving for a particular thing or an atonement for a particular sin or on, on be asking for a specific benefit for a specific person, we offer the Mass that way too. And that's why we offer the Mass for particular people. So those intentions come from people calling in and saying, I'd like to have a Mass offered for my grandmother on her birthday or whatever. And then they, they take down the intention, and then the priest offers the Mass for those intentions. Every time I celebrate Mass, I look before I go out to see the intention. Right? It's also actually sitting on a little card on the altar, so right at the moment of the sacrifice, you see the intention. Okay. Anybody want to ask a question about the sacrifice of the Mass? Mm-hmm. So, thinking back about the Passover, um, the sacrifice that was that night, those weren't made by ordained, they weren't made by the, the Levite priest, they were made in each family's home, right? Uh, the Passover lamb you're talking about? No, actually, each family would have brought their lamb to the temple. They took the temple mm-hmm. And the priest would offer it, and the um, blood of the lamb was offered to God at the altar. And then the family took the lamb home uh, and ate the lamb. And uh, eating the lamb, eating the sacrifice, all through ancient sacrificial rituals, there's that aspect that very frequently you eat the sacrifice or some of the sacrifice. One of the meanings of that is that it pulls you into the sacrifice, right? Um, And makes you part of it and connects you with God somehow since it's offered to God, but you're receiving some of it too. And so um, both of those things are elements in the mass. We have the the ascending element, We offer a sacrifice to God in the Mass and the descending element. We receive communion or we eat of the sacrifice as well. It's offered to God and it's received by us. And that binds us and God uh, together. Actually, if you you had been there, there basically a a big channel from the temple running out into the Kidron Valley that during Passover would have been literally filled with blood. I mean, literally a, a river of lamb's blood flowing out of the temple. This would have been a striking sign, right? Okay, over here. Uh, isn't it like in the Pentateuch, I think it's Leviticus, where they talk about like the priest's title for a certain amount of the food that sacrificed. 
Yeah, some of the, for some of the sacrifices, parts of the animal were given to the priest, and that was like their support or how they made their living. They received some of the sacrifices. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, was the Last Supper a sacrifice? Yeah, that's a good question. The Last Supper is curious because it's the only mass that was offered before. Um, it was only a mass that was offered before um, Christ's physical sacrifice on the cross. Um, it is. It, it was a sacrifice, and uh, its power, its virtue, came from signifying and making present a future event. Whereas all the masses celebrated after, their power comes from signifying and making present a past event. Um, but that's a good question. The, the Holy Thursday was a sacrifice too. In, in fact, that helps make the significance of the cross clearer. When people question whether, the, whether Jesus understood his death on the cross as a sacrifice, the Last Supper really helps explain that he did. In fact, um, at the cross, the sort of cultic, liturgical aspects of a sacrifice would have been in short supply. It was, a, you know, it was a bloody execution. In some way, you could see that as supplied by what happened the night before, right? the more explicit um, ritual that Christ enacted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't quite understand the, the because language is my obstacle, sorry to say that. But I do have a book called the, the Spirit of the Liturgy. Does the book contain all the contents of the Spirit of the Liturgy? Uh-huh, the Spirit of the Liturgy? Yeah, right by the Pope. Ben. Ratzinger, uh-huh, yeah. So is it enough for me to understand the whole thing? <laughs> It'll help you make a good start on understanding the whole thing. I mean, it's a huge subject. You won't be able to exhaust it from that book, but you'll be, be in a good start. That's a great book. Okay. Now we're going to say a couple words about the four other sacraments. Just a couple words each, since we're out of time. Penance, anointing, marriage. We're not going to spend a lot of time because you already have got the basics of a sacrament. So we're going to just say a couple words about what each one does. Penance is the sacrament of reconciliation or confession or penance, it gets all of those names. Um, where did it come from? Clearly, if we read the Gospels, the forgiveness of sins was part of Jesus' ministry. Right? He does that many times. And he communicates the forgiveness of sins by means of visible signs during his ministry, frequently by saying the words, your sins are forgiven. Right? Sometimes joining a miracle to that to prove that he has the power to, uh, to do what he says. And Particularly in St. John's Gospel, after the resurrection, we read that Christ committed this ministry to the apostles. After he had risen from the dead and appeared to them, he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you retain, they are retained. Okay? The church has always understood from that passage that Christ committed to his apostles the ministry of forgiving sin. And this is the origin of the sacrament of confession or reconciliation, or penance. As the Father sent me, so I send you. What the Father sent me to do, I'm sending you to do. And forgiving sins was part of that, part of that ministry. Okay, so remember we said sacraments have matter and form. Matter and form. Anybody remember what that distinction is? What's matter and form? 
the material stuff that makes up part of the sign of the sacrament, and the form is the The form is the words. The matter is the stuff. The form is the words. In baptism, the matter is a washing with water. The form is the words. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, penance and marriage are both tricky because they don't have matter in the same way that the other five sacraments have matter. Curiously enough, penance and marriage are the two sacraments that existed before Christ instituted the sacraments. I mean, they weren't sacraments before, but they existed before, right? People repented of their sins before Christ, and people got married before Christ. What Christ did was take those two human actions that already existed and raise them to the dignity of a sacrament. Because they're human actions, they don't have the same kind of matter that the other sacraments have. About penance, we say that it has quasi-matter, and that matter is um, the things that the penitent does the things that the penitent does. So when you go to confession, the things that you do are you are sorry for your sins. That's called contrition, being sorry for your sins. You confess your sins with your mouth, and then you receive a penance, which you do. You do something to try to make amends for your sins, right? To try to, try to correct the problem. So that, those three actions of the penitent are the matter of the sacrament of confession, to confess with the mouth, to be sorrowful with the heart, to make amends with the deeds. Those are the acts of the penitent. The form of the sacrament is the words that the priest says. Does anybody know what they are? Well, they sound like this. God, the Father of mercies, through the death and resurrection of his Son, has reconciled the world to himself and sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins. Through the ministry of the church, may God give you pardon and peace. The priest during that prayer extends his hand over the penitent and it says, and then he says, and I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And makes the sign of the cross. Those are the words, right? Just like the other matter in form, the matter is a sign and the words complete the meaning of the sign. So washing with water is a sign, but a washing with water could mean that you're dirty, that you're going swimming, that whatever. It could mean a lot of things. The words, though, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they complete the meaning so that it has the sacramental meaning. So in the same way in penance, your actions, when you're sorry for your sins, you confess them and you make amends, gets the sign started. But to signify reconciliation with God, there has to be a signification that God forgives you and accepts that, right? And restores union with him. And that's through the words, the minister of the sacrament of penance is a priest because it's to the apostles that Christ committed this ministry of forgiving sins. And the priests are, the, um, are in the line of apostolic succession, continuing the ministry of the apostles. And the recipient of penance is uh, a sinner who's been baptized and fallen into sin again. So that's the thing about penance. Penance is for the forgiveness of sins committed after baptism. What's the sacrament for the forgiveness of sins committed before baptism? That's right. That's right. So you guys who are preparing for your baptism, you never have to go to confession for anything that you did before your baptism, okay? Because baptism washes it all away, clean washed away, right? The sacrament of penance is instituted for the forgiveness of sins committed after baptism. Yeah. I've heard from like other people that like before you get 
like a, a confession type thing. Is that not true? It's not true. You don't have to make any confession before you get baptized. You do have to be sorry for your sins, but you don't have to confess them. But it's a one-time deal. After that, uh, <laughs> the second time is a little bit harder. Okay. What does the sacrament do? It renews and strengthens grace, especially if grace has been lost by sin. Yes, Cassandra? Um, okay. It renews and strengthens grace, especially if grace has been lost by sin. It's restored to us by the sacrament. It also gives us the grace to do some specific things. Um, what do you suppose the grace of the sacrament of penance gives us the strength to do? Resist committing those sins again. Mm -hmm. So it gives us the grace to avoid those sins in the future. What do you think the other one is? Uh huh. Uh, yeah, that's more of something that opens up for us, a possibility that it opens up for us. If we've sinned, one thing is that we want to avoid those sins in the future. There's another thing there. Mm -hmm. Which, if we've sinned, what will living righteously specifically include? It will. What I'm looking for is making amends for our sins. Okay, so... Uh, sometimes more and sometimes less, but very often when we've sinned and we're sorry, there's something we need to do to make amends. Now, that may be something as simple as we need to pray a little bit more and kind of focus back in on our relationship with God again, or it may be something quite difficult, um, you know, especially if we've committed, uh, you know, when somebody's committed some serious sins against justice and there's, um, there's restitution that needs to be made, you know. If you've, uh, if you've stolen a whole lot of money, um, and you've still got it, then part of your path of repentance is that you're going to have to give it back, right? And that might be difficult to do. Uh, so it's part of the grace of uh, the sacrament that it strengthens us to do that, even if that might be hard, to do our penance and, in general, to make amends, to make amends for our sins. Okay. The anointing of the sick, the second sacrament of healing. If we look through the Gospels, we can see that the healing of the sick is part of Christ's ministry, is a special, many of the miracles, like cures of the sick. Um, we can see also that he's always concerned not only with the physical, but also with the spiritual health of those who are sick. St. Mark's Gospel mentions that he sent the apostles out and that they anointed the sick during his ministry. And St. James records for us that <coughs> in the ancient church, in the New Testament church, this ritual of anointing the sick by um, of the priests anointing those who are sick with oil was preserved. Right? So this is the, where it comes from. What do you suppose the matter of anointing the sick is? The sign. What's the physical sign? Mm -hmm. The oil, and specifically the anointing with oil. Right? Um, Father Will talked about some of the meanings of anointing with oil when he talked about confirmation. Here, especially the healing um, the healing element comes out. Now, I don't know. There's some doctors here. Maybe they'll know. But uh, in, the, uh, in the Good Samaritan story, the, uh, the uh, man who takes the, uh, the man who's been beat up by robbers, he, he, he attends to his wounds with oil and wine. Uh, from what I understand, the idea is that uh, wine might have served as some kind of disinfectant and that oil might have served as some kind of it could be a soothing thing if, uh, if wounds were irritated. And it could also be a uh, 
thing that might prevent the infection of wounds if there was a if there was a coating of oil over it. What do you guys think? What's your medical opinion? <laughs> if it's sterile wine, if it's filled with whatnot. Anyway, whether or not that uh, whether or not that works very well or not, it was used. Oil was used as a healing kind of thing in the ancient world, and that's especially its signification here. The form is uh, is a prayer to God for the effects of the sacrament, which has varied somewhat over the course of history. It's been an example where the form was not specifically determined by Christ, so the church determines the form. Um, And the form that we use now is through this holy anointing. May the Lord in his love and mercy help you with the grace of the Holy Spirit. The priest says that as he anoints the forehead of the sick person, and then he anoints the palms of each hand and says, uh, may the Lord who saves you, who frees you from sin, save you and raise you up. Okay, those are the words. The minister of the sacrament is again a priest. And the recipient of the sacrament is anyone who is seriously sick. That's one requirement. Some level of serious sickness, okay? The sacrament is not for those who are lightly sick, not for those who have, a, you know, cedar allergies, but it's for some kind of serious sickness. It's not reserved for the extreme moment of death. You don't have to wait until you're about to die to receive it. It suffices that you be seriously sick. And in fact, the beginning of a serious illness is the proper time to receive the sacrament. Okay? Um, Not the very end. The person who receives it also needs to be baptized, like with all the sacraments. You have to be baptized first before you can receive the others. Um, And the sacrament of anointing, as we're about to see, also has this element of the forgiveness of sins. Frequently in Jesus' miracles, the physical healing and the forgiveness of sin was joined together. St. James mentions that too. If anyone's sick, let him call for the priests of the church. Let them anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, and um, the Lord will uh, save the sick person. If he's committed any sins, his sins will be forgiven him, right? And so because of this reason, because uh, anointing of the sick has this connection to penance, we do not give the anointing of the sick to um, little children who have not reached the age of reason, okay? Um, Because they wouldn't have committed any sins and they wouldn't have any penance to do, right? So if little children are sick or dying, we baptize them, we confirm them, um, but we don't give them the anointing of the sick because they don't need it, okay? They don't need it. The effects of the sacrament are a strengthening of grace, especially a grace to do what, you think? Huh? Yep. Do all the morally difficult things you have to do when you're sick. Persevere, maintain your hope, be cheerful, be nice to the uh, people who are taking care of you, uh, etc. right? The grace to go through your sickness well, especially courage, and especially when this comes to the point of death and deadly sickness, to, to approach that with courage and with perseverance. It also, the second has an effect of the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of venial sins... And even if someone's not able to go to confession, because usually they're unconscious at that point, the forgiveness of mortal sins is also an effect of the anointing of the sick when the person's not able to make a confession. And sometimes physical healing is also an effect of the sacrament. We say that physical healing will happen from the sacrament if it would be for the good of your soul. Only God knows that, though. Only God knows if... uh, you know, if a healing would be for the good of your soul right now. 
That might be a total healing or it might be a partial healing. Um, it can be an effect of the sacrament to lighten the illness a little bit. Maybe, maybe that gives you the boost you need to be courageous and make it through or whatever. But there can be a physical healing. That's an effect of the sacrament. Okay. Marriage. Marriage is the other one that doesn't have matter in the normal sense because it already existed. Long before Christ, there was marriage. But we say that Christ took marriage and raised it to the dignity of a sacrament, which means that marriage becomes a sign of God's grace and an effect of God and an instrument of God's grace. Marriage especially um, becomes a sacrament because of the nuptial imagery of salvation. We read in the New Testament that Christ is the groom and that his church is the bride. Even in the Old Testament, this image was already there. Um, the covenant between God and Israel was depicted as a marriage with God as the groom and Israel as the bride and with Israel's worship of other gods as a kind of adultery. So because the marriage covenant between man and woman comes to be a sign of God's covenant with his people, uh, this is why marriage could become a sacrament. It can become a sacred sign. Uh, and every marriage of Christians becomes this kind of sacred sign. Who do you think is the minister and the recipient of marriage? Who ministers it? If you've ever been at a wedding, does the priest say, uh, I marry you in the name of the Father and the Son? No. In marriage, it's the couple themselves who minister the sacrament to each other. It's the couple's action that ministers the sacrament each to the other. And they do that when they say their wedding vows. I take you as my wife. I take you as my husband. They confer a sacrament on each other. Um, and the priest is there to um, witness it, right? And to receive it in the name of the church. What do you think are the effects of marriage? There's an effect of grace. What do you suppose it's a grace to do? Probably to live selflessly for each other. Yeah. To do all the morally hard things you have to do in order to be married. To forgive each other, to love each other, to sacrifice for each other and for your children. Um, all of those things. To persevere. It's grace to do all of that that comes from the sacrament of marriage. And the other effect of marriage is the marriage bond. Right? Which is a permanent bond then between husband and wife. That comes into existence and links them together then in the sight of God. Uh, always after that, which is why <clears throat> in Catholic theology we don't um, we don't generally consider the uh, a divorce in the true sense of a dissolution of the bond of marriage to be possible when you have a marriage between two baptized people that's become a sacrament um, because a marriage bond comes into existence. Yeah. Yeah, there are marriages that are not sacramental, and that is any marriage that's not between two baptized people. That's what you call a natural marriage. Uh, and so there was marriage in the world before Christ raised marriage to the dignity of a sacrament, and it's still there. So when two, um, when two Muslims get married or two atheists get married, their marriage is a real marriage. Um, you know, they really are married to each other, but their marriage isn't a sacrament, which means it's not, uh, 
signifying the grace of God in the same way, and it's not an instrument by which the grace of God comes into the world in the same way. Huh? So there was marriage before um, Jesus, but there was also like polygamy marriages too. So how has that ever been? Like when was that just like the policy enacted that marriage was just two people? The policy? <laughs> well, uh, you can read all, you can read quite a bit about that, and there'd be different theological opinions on what to do with the uh, what to do with the polygamy of the patriarchs in the Old Testament. Abraham and some of these other guys have more than one wives. Um, but certainly, what Jesus points out in the gospel is that in the beginning, uh, there was no polygamy and no divorce. Right. Um, he he says that about divorce when the Pharisees ask him. In the beginning, it wasn't so. The man will cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So in, in terms of Adam and Eve in the garden, the original institution of marriage, there's no polygamy and there's no divorce. Um, now, both of those things uh, crept in somehow. Uh, talking about divorce, Jesus says it was allowed in the law of Moses because of the hardness of your hearts, but in the beginning it wasn't so. And so uh, we leave it to a discussion of the other time what to do theologically with the existence of divorce and polygamy in the Old Testament, but suffice it to say that whatever we do with that, the teaching of Christ makes clear that those things aren't possible in Christian marriage, right? The Christian marriage is monogamous and permanent. Uh-huh. Is like yes, their marriage would become a sacrament as soon as they both get baptized. And there would be no need for another marriage ceremony or anything like that. It'd be automatic. Okay. Good. There are going to be too many questions, so I'm going to move on to holy orders, and then we'll, we'll loop back around. Holy orders. This is the last thing. Christ instituted this by calling the apostles. Clearly, he sets the twelve apart from the rest. He teaches them in a special way along the course of the thing. He gives them some special mandates. It's to the twelve that he gives the mandate, do this in memory of me. It's to the 12 after the resurrection that he says, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven, right? And it's to them in a special way that he commits the government of the church and the task of preaching and teaching. So the, the, uh, the celebration of the sacraments, the governing of the church, the task of preaching and teaching. These are committed by Christ the Lord in a special way to the 12. Um, now, that ministry that the apostles received was transmitted after that by means of a sacrament, the sacrament of the holy orders or the sacrament of ordination. This, uh, this is uh, something that we still do today. So when a priest becomes a priest, there's an ordination ceremony. I was ordained to the priesthood on June 3rd, 2017 at St. William's Church in Round Rock with uh, my four other classmates. So the five of us are there. Bishop Vasquez was there. It, w- it was a... It was a an ordination. So the matter of this sacrament, does anybody know what it is? It's the laying on of hands. So when a man is going to become a priest or a deacon or a bishop, the bishop who ordains him lays his hands on him. And this is a signal of calling down God's grace, and it's also a signal of connection. Whenever I was ordained, Bishop Vasquez laid his hands on my head. And when Bishop Vasquez was ordained a bishop, there were other bishops who laid their hands on his head. And when those bishops were ordained, there were other bishops that laid their hands on their head. And back and back and back and back uh, to the 12th. 
And in fact, you can go into Paul's letters to Timothy and hear Paul reminding Timothy of his ordination. And he tells Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, I love this passage. I think about it when the anniversary of my ordination comes around. He says, Timothy, stir into flame the gift that you have within you by the laying on of my hands. Right? In other words, Paul says, Timothy, you remember when I ordained you? Stir it into flame. Very good. So this is the matter. It's the laying on of hands. And the form is the words of a prayer, which I don't have by memory, that signifies, uh, that signifies the order being conferred and the grace of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And the prayer is different when you're ordaining a deacon, when you're ordaining a priest, when you're ordaining a bishop. The laying on of hands is the same. Okay? It's always a bishop who administers this sacrament. Priests don't ordain and deacons don't ordain, but only bishops ordain. And the one who can receive this sacrament is um, a baptized male. Right? Only men can receive this sacrament. We'll come back to that in a minute. The effects of this sacrament are grace. Grace to do what, do you suppose? Hmm? The grace to act in the person of Christ. Yeah. So the grace to do all the morally difficult things that priests and bishops and deacons have to do. The grace to pray, the grace to preach, the grace to make good decisions about governing the church. Um, across the board, right? It's the grace of state, a grace to carry out the ministry. And then the other effect of ordination which is like baptism and confirmation in this way, is that it imprints a character. This is coming back to being configured to Christ. The character, three sacraments imprint a character, baptism, confirmation, and holy orders. The character is a spiritual mark that's put upon the soul. You could think of this as like the image of a, uh, a Roman soldier. They called it a character because Roman soldiers were sometimes literally branded with a hot iron that gave the emperor's insignia on them. And, um, and after that, you knew who they belonged to. They belonged to the emperor. You knew whose authority they had, the emperor's authority, right? You knew what mission they had. They were the emperor's soldiers, right? So just in that way, baptism, confirmation, and holy orders put not a physical but a spiritual mark on us that gives us an identity. All three of those make us belong to Christ in a certain way. As his, a member of his body, as a soldier in his church, as his priest or deacon or bishop. It gives us a power and it gives us a mission, all three of those sacraments. The power, especially when it comes to priesthood, especially connected with the power to administer the sacraments, to govern the church, and to preach the word. Those three things. Okay. Last question. These last two sacraments of vocation, marriage and holy orders, are peculiar in that they have a uh, gender requirement. So the other five sacraments can be conferred on men and women, but marriage can only be between a man and a woman, and holy orders can only be conferred on a man. What do you suppose that comes from? To understand that, we want to step back a little bit into the into the world of the Old Testament. The Old Testament um, presents two peculiarities between Judaism and other ancient religions. Judaism exclusively uses uh, male pronouns for God, right? He, him, his, king and not queen, lord and not lady. And Judaism is somewhat 
unique also in having an all-male priesthood. The pagan religions, they have priestesses and they have goddesses, right? But not Judaism. As that imagery is developed in the prophets, it turns out not to be a cultural accident, but to have a deep mystical meaning. According to the prophets, Israel is in a kind of mystical marriage with God, which God is the groom and Israel is the bride. And the covenant is a kind of marriage that binds them together. In the New Testament, we're told that Christ is the groom and that the church is his bride in this mystical marriage that governs them together. And so this is where we start to see why this gendered reality becomes important for these two sacraments of vocation. Because the imagery is not interchangeable. In this image, God has to be the husband and Israel has to be the bride. Christ has to be the groom and the church has to be the bride. And you can't just flip the image around because in that nuptial imagery, it's the masculine side that gives, that um, impregnates, that causes the wife to bear fruit and not the other way around. It's the wife who receives, who receives life, who is made fruitful. And you can start to see why you can't flip that image on its head. In Israel's relationship to God, in the church's relationship to Christ, is Christ who gives to the church his grace, not the, not, um, the church that gives grace to Christ. It's Christ who makes the church fruitful, if you want, impregnates the church, not the other way around. The church doesn't make Christ fruitful, right? And so this mystical symbolism of marriage uh, requires the association of the masculine with God and the feminine with the human, right? This is the, this is the meaning of the imagery. So we can start to see why a sacrament of marriage has to be between a man and a woman. Right? Otherwise, it will be incapable of signifying this relationship between Christ and the church. And we can also begin to see why holy orders can only be received by a man, because the priest has to stand in the person of Christ, has to be Christ's agent in the giving of grace uh, to his people, which is why, in order to preserve that nuptial symbolism, uh, the priest has to be a man, and holy orders can't be conferred on a woman. Okay. Now we talked about way too many things in way too short an amount of time. We didn't get the chance to uh, scratch the surface of all of them, but I'm going to stop there, and we're going to go to our discussion group, and then at the end, we'll have a few minutes for questions at the end. So percolate on any questions during your discussion group. You guys have it at the tables? Ephesians 5? Okay, a couple, uh, couple notes about this passage, and then we'll take some questions. Uh, obviously, it's a passage that uh, can certainly grade on modern sensibilities, and it's the passage that's been subject of uh, teaching by modern popes, most recently of extensive teaching by St. John Paul II in the, um, in the theology of the body. Um, so we won't, in this conversation tonight, exhaust the interpretive questions around this passage, but I hope it spurred some good uh, discussions. Just a couple points to make about it, maybe. First of all, so the word uh, submit in modern English can have pretty negative connotations, could even mean something kind of exploitive, or something like that. It's not, those are not connotations that the word has in Greek. In Greek, the word is hupataxis, 
which uh, the taxis is to get something organized, especially soldiers. Uh, so hupa taxis means to like get organized under or to get ready to go into action under or something like that. Or coordinate might even be a word that would get at some of the Greek meaning. Um, so there's nothing exploitative or um, you know, dominative about the Greek word. Another thing is that while the passage certainly does describe a diversity of roles between husband and wife, it begins by describing a similarity of roles. The first word is be submissive to each other, um, which is the foundation of everything else that it goes on to say. Um, now we'll open up the uh, floor for questions. Um, I thought that holy orders meant something like the Benedictines or Dominicans or Jesuits. Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> so there are, uh, you're thinking of religious orders. And so an order means, a, in Latin, means an, uh, an order. Roman society had ordines, uh, the order of senators, the order of knights, the different um, orders. So uh, in the church, holy orders refers to the three sacramental orders of deacon, priest, and bishop. These are orders that are conferred by means of, um, of a sacrament, and what, to be um, ordained to that order is to be configured to Christ in a certain way and to become part of a of a group with a certain function within the church. Now you're thinking of religious orders, which are um, groups of people getting together to live a certain kind of, of religious life and community, like Benedictine monks or Dominican friars. Those are orders too, in a different sense, but those are not um, a sacrament. It's a vow that you make that is basically what consecrates you to the worship of God. Um, so to become a member of a religious order, it's fundamentally your action. You make a vow, assisted by God's grace, of course, but your action that incorporates you into the order. In ordination, it's, uh, in holy orders, it's God's action. Um, and becoming a member of a religious order is not a sacrament, whereas being ordained a deacon or a priest or a bishop is. It's a good question. Mm -hmm. Say that the son is a kind of bride to the father. That the son is a bride to the father. Why? Because um, well, we're kind of trying to understand or wrap our heads around the idea. We get that you know, men, only men being ordained in holy orders, but how do you understand men being part of the body of Christ as Christ's bride? And one thought that I had was, well, Maybe Christ is kind of like the bride of the Father, and so that's a similar relationship there that's modeled. Uh, mm -hmm. well, a couple things there. Uh, first of all, um, the tradition has not said that, not used that kind of language, feminine language, to refer to the Son. Um, but you're, you're correct that that masculine imagery applied to God is, is dealing with God's relationship to us. Um, now, I think that to use um, feminine imagery for the sun would be problematic. Uh, there's a sense in which the sun receives everything that he is and has from the father. They're the same God, the same essence, but they're distinct persons, three different persons. And the sun, we say, receives the divinity from the father, but there's nothing in the sun that's um, passive in 
in us, there's a sort of um, potency that God can actualize by his grace. There's a certain receptivity in us that's first uh, empty, and then when the grace of God comes, it, it gets called into being, and that's fundamentally involved with the notion that there's a kind of change when God's grace comes into your life. You're changed, uh, converted, whatever. That's not going on in the Trinity, because there's nothing in the Son that's um, receptive. There's no um, potencies in the Son that have to be actualized. It's not that he's. It's not that he, first of all, is not actualized and then receives something from the Father. Um, so that's why I think the tradition has probably been reluctant to do that. But on the other hand. Uh, you're right that that nuptial imagery makes every human being feminine with, um, with respect to God, um, even in that, in that uh, kind of analogy, every human soul, including the souls of men, is feminine with respect to God. Uh, it's God who um, is active, who makes fruitful. Uh, and that's why in most of the spiritual writers traditionally use the feminine imagery to, assert, to refer to the generic soul. When God gives his grace to the soul, she receives it, something like that, right? Uh, and that's why the uh, sort of example of, the, uh, of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Christ par excellence, is, is who? Is the Blessed Virgin Mary, who is, of course, a woman, right? Um, so, uh, I mean, yes, I think that's a good insight. So masculine and feminine are relational terms. A man is only masculine in relation to women, and a woman is only feminine in relation to men. And they're masculine and feminine specifically in respect to their procreative faculties, right? Um, but there could be other kinds of masculine and feminine that are not having to do with procreation. Like, in a way, you could say that teaching is masculine and the learning is feminine. Um, and obviously, that's just on a whole different plane. Uh, and it's possible, you know, you even think about, like, the angels, that some angels enlighten other angels. That's what St. Thomas says, the higher ones enlighten the lower ones, and so on down the... Which makes them, in a way, to use the imagery, uh, makes the lower angels feminine with respect to the angels above them and masculine with respect to the angels below them, if, you, uh, if it's not too weird to stretch the imagery that way. Good thought. Mm -hmm. Could you refresh my memory? You said there were four roles, for lack of a better word, that Christ gave to the priest. Mm -hmm. um, could you call those? Yeah, three, really. Three. Um, so the, um, the sanctifying role, uh, which is to administer the sacraments and to, and to lead the people in the worship of God. Um, and then to, to preach the gospel, to preach and teach, and then to govern the church. Um, and the, those three things are, when we say that Christ was priest, prophet, and king, those are connected with those things, right? The priesthood is connected with administering the sacraments and the worship of God. The prophetic thing is connected with teaching and preaching. The kingly thing is connected with governing, um, governing the church. Other questions? Mm -hmm. I understand the idea of penance in a high 
positive manner. Uh huh. Yeah, that's a good question. It does have a long history. Um, in the, I, I guess we have this things in the gospel. It first really becomes a problem for the church when you have, um, when you have Christians who abandon Christ in the persecutions. So there, um, you know, there are a lot of martyrs who chose to die rather than to deny Christ. There were also a lot of Christians who chose to deny Christ and save their lives. And then what happened a lot of times was after the persecution was over, they came back and they were sorry and they um, wanted to be reconciled to the church. Uh, and there were people who, you know, in the early church then, there were different opinions started to come out. No, you can't do that. <laughs> you abandon Christ, that's it, you're done. Um, there's no way back, it's too late. Should have thought of that before you, okay. And then there's the people who said, well, you need to be baptized again then. If you abandon Christ, the only way back is to be baptized again. And then there were other people who said, you can't be baptized again. Well, if you can't be baptized again, but you can come back somehow, then what do you have to do? Um, penance, ultimately, was the answer to that. Um, in the early church, it tended to be, it, I guess it's of the nature of the case, that the, it, it was frequently, there was, one of the things that's hard is it's hard to figure out the relationship when you read the early documents between sacramental penance that was private and the church had a system of public penance uh, that was imposed for public sins. And it could be hard in the early church. Like you denied Christ like that in a persecution, you might've been allowed back after like 10 or 20 years of, you know, standing outside the church in sackcloth every Sunday morning and uh, fasting, you know, or whatever. Uh, you know, it was pretty serious. Um, so over time, it got milder, it got secreter, um, and it got uh, it got more and more applied not only to very very serious sin, but to even venial sins or ordinary sins. Um, even in the early church when there was public penance, it's, it's hard to know if that was really connected to private penance or if maybe they were just two totally separate things. Um, or maybe there was private confession but public penance. Um, but nobody really knew what you did or what you confessed, maybe. Um, hard to sort out all that. But uh, So that's to answer the historical question. So originally articulating this was the moderate, or the position of mercy. The, the other position was, that's it. Once you've sinned, you can't come back. Um, and the, the popes who articulated the doctrine of penance were articulating a doctrine of mercy. You can come back. Uh, it can seem like a negative thing. It doesn't mean that we, um, like our own works of penance, can't really atone for our sin uh, separated from the power of Christ's cross. Um, but they do have value joined to Christ's cross. And so 
when Christ says, you know, take up your cross and follow me, right? When St. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, there's this notion that our works, including our works of penance, can, can come to be connected, so connected to Christ's work that, and so enlivened by the grace that flows from Christ's work that they do have a value um, in front of God. So maybe that's one thing I'd say. And then I'd want to add that it's something that we, um, naturally speaking, want. When you have offended someone, you want to make amends. Uh, even if they say, don't worry about it, you don't have to make amends, you want to. Um, even if they will forgive you anyway, you want to if you can. Uh, and so that, that's connected with the idea of penance too.